Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I've been thinking a lot lately about this idea of American masculinity. The little boxes we tell boys they must check in order to be, quote, real men. You've seen some of it in response to recent mass shootings. Guns are just part of our culture. Gun advertisers often tell men to take back their man card by buying a gun. Or you hear it in the rhetoric of politicians like Josh Hawley. Or pundits like Tucker Carlson, who are shouting about some sort of war on men. Or in the language of the Proud Boys or the alt-right. Or ads that prey on men's insecurities to tell them to buy supplements that allegedly boost their testosterone. Or in our obsession with gender reveal parties that have somehow managed to start wildfires in the American West. We tell boys to man up. Boys don't cry. State legislators have spent the past few years obsessing over trans people and trying to submit some sort of archetypal idea of boyhood and girlhood. But it's always been more complicated than that. We know that. And that's why I was so excited to read Frederick Joseph's new bestseller, Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood. You may know Frederick as the force behind the Black Panther Project, that effort that raised over $1 million to help young black children see Black Panther in theaters. He later led a similar effort for young girls to see Captain Marvel. He raised funds to help people pay their rent during the early days of the pandemic shutdown. He's poured a lot into his community. His first book, The Black Friend, has become one of those books about race that's getting banned in school districts all across the country because Frederick's not afraid to confront big issues in big ways. But importantly, he's not afraid to confront his own demons either. This book, Patriarchy Blues, is filled with essays that break down his ideas on what it means to be a man in America. These false binaries that we choose to accept between masculine and feminine traits, and the ways in which we'd all be liberated if we embrace womanist philosophies to move past some of these tropes. We're all human beings who should get to experience the full depths of our humanity, including chances to cry, to laugh, to get angry, to get hurt, to show love, to show pain, to sing, and to dance. There's something in this conversation and in this book for everyone, so I hope you'll give it a listen, and then I hope you'll pick up a copy of Patriarchy Blues. So let's go ahead and get started with this week's episode of The Reckoning. Frederick Joseph, welcome to The Reckoning Interview. Pleasure to be here. We are here to talk about your new book, Patriarchy Blues, Reflection on Manhood. And in some ways, I think your journey toward this book started with a multiple sclerosis diagnosis in your early 20s. You write early on in the book that that gave you the chance to assess who you'd been and how you might be remembered, and you didn't necessarily like what you saw at the time. So tell me about that diagnosis and how it changed the course of your life. Yeah, I think that the two inflection points in my life have been A, finding out about my MS and, and then sometime before that, starting college, right? Because I think that starting college is when I really started to unpack and unlearn white supremacy, you know, but then I realized in my MS diagnosis when I was really looking at myself and kind of seeing how people around me 
we're still kind of in, in these metaphorical shackles for things beyond white supremacy. I'm like, you know, the only work I've done is combating white supremacy. And I've only done that work because it benefits me. Right. And I'm like, a person who only does things because it benefits them, that's that's not a legacy, really. That's that's self-interest. So then, you know, I thought to myself, what more could I be doing again to not only lift, but destroy those metaphorical shackles that are on other people? And obviously the name of the book is Patriarchy Blues. Patriarchy is a, a big word that I think a lot of people have different working definitions for in different situations. So, you know, just for the course of this conversation, give us your working definition and how you understand patriarchy and what you're you know, working against. It's interesting. It is a big word, which is, you know, why every interview I do, people always ask me that because I think it's, it's an important question, right? I define patriarchy in the most intersectional way I can, right? Patriarchy is many things. It's a evil structure with tentacles that are named transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, misogynoir, rape culture, toxic masculinity, right? It's There's so much there that it's hard to kind of like pin it down in a definition as much as it's like the umbrella of many things that are destroying society. And have been a part of society for, you know, almost as long as society has been around. You unpack a lot of kind of the history of how patriarchy has evolved. What did you learn in the course of writing this book about, you know, the historical roots of patriarchy? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was actually just having this conversation last night. I, I think a lot of our oppressive constructs, whether that's patriarchy, white supremacy, current construct of, of capitalism, we see them as like these things that are older than time itself, but they're not really, right? Like we can trace back the contemporary forms of patriarchy. And I found that again, throughout my research. If you look at something like even like transphobia, some of the oldest societies in history had people who were trans and respected them, right? Like people were able to live their lives and be free about certain things, even homophobia, right? Like you look at some of the, some of the, the quote unquote great societies and, you know, they teach us about history classes, like the Greeks and people like that, right? Like people were very much into freedom of sexuality in many instances. And it's only been in the last few thousand years globally and a few hundred years, um, obviously here in the United States, that we started having this very staunch, oppressive sense of bodily autonomy, sexual freedom. And I think, you know, a lot of that came with the rise of global Christianity. Well, and, you know, you mentioned that these the great societies like the Greeks and the Romans and things like that. And it's also interesting, just, you know, a lot of the indigenous communities in the United States had reverence for people who were intersex or who were trans or who were gender nonconforming. And a lot of that has kind of disappeared, obviously, as kind of the European influences took over in the Americas. But you do write about terms like masculinity and femininity as being social constructs tied to a false binary. And I do feel like, you know, that's another one of those big words. It's a hard idea for people to wrap their heads around because some of these constructs are relatively recent, like blue is a boy color and pink is a girl color. But then there are some of these constructs that were even placed in some of those older societies, the hunter-gatherer societies of gender roles more than gender constructs. So how do you parse through all that of like, you know, what's worth keeping and what should we be throwing out the window? I think that in our current society, right, 
where we don't really have uh, hunters and gatherers per se, right? You know, these these guys who are going out there and using uh, high-powered sniper rifles are just as equipped as any woman to use those to hunt a deer, right? So, you know, I think that many of the, the gender roles of past eras don't need to exist, right? Like, and then the construct of more contemporary gender roles don't even make sense, right? Like, let's use even like who does the cooking and the cleaning, right? Like historically, we we have identified that as women and it was in part because men were out doing the breadwinning, right? And But that's only because of the power dynamics we created. There was no reason why Don Draper and Mad Men, why Bet- Betty Draper couldn't go run an ad agency and Don Draper couldn't stay home and cook, right? There's no reason they couldn't. They had enough money for both of them to go run separate ad agencies and, you know, get home and, and microwave a dinner or find someone else to cook. Our constructs, they don't make any sense really. And not only do they not make sense, but they're limiting, right? So you take me, for example, and, and I use a lot of myself as the um, vessel for understanding certain things throughout the book. I grew up in an area where, you know, boys are taught, you don't cry, you don't do certain things, right? When you're teaching young men that they can't do certain things, when you're teaching young women that they're not supposed to do other things, it really does fracture the totality of your human existence, right? It leaves you with a whole set of emotions that you're not able to access or not supposed to access. I look at something like the mass shooting that took place in Buffalo. And as soon as you know, I found out, I, I broke down in tears. And those tears were actually, there were tears of both sadness and rage, right? But if I didn't have those tears and all that I have is my rage, what am I going to do with that rage then, right? If I didn't lean into you know, both the masculine, quote unquote, and the feminine inside of me, now I'm just angry. And I think that we have a society that is that, right? A bunch of men who are just angry and a bunch of women who are told they're not allowed to be angry, you know? Like I said, it's extremely limiting and it doesn't really make sense because if we weren't supposed to have a range of emotions, a, a range of roles, a range of interests, be dynamic people, then we would have never been made this way in the first place. Well, it's interesting because, you know, it does feel like for the past few decades, we have done a better job collectively as society of expanding kind of the possibilities of what young girls and women in this country can do and can be and paving the way for women to tap into more of those emotions like you were just talking about. But we have also kind of on the inverse of that, put men in smaller and smaller boxes of what it means to be a real man. And you talked about, you know, growing up, you were somebody who liked musicals. I like musicals. That didn't necessarily fit the mold of, you know, a black man growing up in Yonkers, New York, or a white man growing up in the suburbs of Alabama. So, you know, you write, I think people are forced to hide their whole selves from the world for safety because they don't fit into the boxes designated for them, boxes for their interests, boxes for their gender, boxes for who they are allowed to be. And it's interesting because that's a form of where the patriarchy and sexism hurts everybody. It, you know, it, it doesn't just hurt women. It doesn't just hurt LGBTQ people. It doesn't just hurt trans people. It hurts hetero cis men. I think oftentimes when we when we talk about dismantling anything, you know, dismantling all these big, big words, white supremacy, patriarchy, we kind of frame it in the sense of like people who benefit from it are doing those who don't a favor. When reality, oftentimes, like even if you look at white supremacy, there are benefits to white people for ending white supremacy, right? Like you are a fuller, total human being for not spending your time hating another race, right? Like for spending your time actually 
learning who you are, thinking inward, figuring things out, like loving life, being dynamic in the same way that like, you know, when we frame patriarchy as like, oh man, cishet men benefit from it and and no one else and everyone else is struggling. No, cishet men are also struggling within patriarchy also, right? Like I literally, if I had it my way, I'd be on Broadway right now. Right, like I would be, I would, I would be on Broadway right now in a show, enjoying my full life, maybe in a leotard and cats. I don't really know, <laughs> but that's the thing. I never will know because patriarchy and its lies about who I had to be to be a real man, a, a real black man, stole that from me. Right, like, and it's and it's stolen it from generations after generation of of men. I look at death by suicide rates of men in certain ages and they make perfect sense to me when you don't have anywhere to turn even when you look in the mirror except for like i'm angry and i'm sad and i don't have anything else i like yeah it makes perfect sense we've given men no options right so so just to be angry sad shells of a real human being there is a growing recognition of that you know, that phenomenon that you're talking about, uh, you hear it raised anytime there's a mass shooting about the crisis facing young men in America, or when you talk about like you're talking about the shockingly high suicide rates, overdose rates among young men. And you have approached it from the ways that like trying to fit into these boxes created by patriarchy cause those mental breaks and lack of options for men. But then you've also got people obviously who are coming out from the other perspective that this quote unquote war on men or using terms like toxic masculinity make young people feel targeted and broken. So what would you say to the people who are making that argument? And I'm talking about the people who are making it in good faith, not opportunistic politicians like Josh Hawley or people like that, but the people who seem to genuinely think things like that. Well, I mean, the people who genuinely seem to think things like that are still thinking of what a man is or what a woman is from a construct and a vantage point of patriarchy, right? It's like, what war is there on men to say like, hey, you can go to therapy, right? Like what war is there on men to be like, hey, you like cooking? Well, go right ahead. As opposed to saying like, are you in there making a PB&J? You must be gay. Like what, like, what are we actually talking about here, right? Like there's not a war on men. I would argue that there's a liberation that's happening for men. You know, it's like, it's not a matter of like, this is who you have to be. Because like realistically, in the stereotypical sense of like, oh, this is a man. I work out constantly. I love sports. I love, you know, I love a good beer. All these, I love barbecue. All these nonsense things that are supposed to be men. But in being, a, trying to be more liberated, I also get to love a good spritzer drink. I also get to go to the ballet. I also get to cry when I'm watching certain movies, right? Like you're not limiting men in as much as you're like actually expanding the opportunity for what men get to be. So when did this journey start for you? You, you know, you talked about the MS diagnosis. You talked about in college kind of combating white supremacy, but this was not your perspective growing up. So when did things start to kind of click for you? It wasn't my perspective in a blatant way growing up. It was kind of instilled in me to a certain extent. Certain things about me is I'm, I'm like, well, I'm not that person, right? So like I grew up in a, in a household that was like, oh, we're not homophobic conceptually, but what does that actually mean, right? It's like, oh, don't say the F word, 
But that's not the only sense of being homophobic. And I think that we're getting kind of like the, the same thing with race. It's like, oh, don't call somebody the N-word. There's a lot more to it than that, right? And I, and I think that I started to realize that there's a lot more to it when certain things are happening to me. I think specifically around my MS, um, I went to a doctor, um, a, a younger white woman who instead of like trying to diagnose what was wrong with me at first, she was like flirting with me and like fetishizing me as, as, a, as a black man, you know, a young black man who's working out, blah, 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 blah. And when I was saying it to people after the fact, people were like, what's the problem, right? And I'm just like looking around like, wait, what? Like, what, what is this, right? So then I'm like searching for answers and along the way, people are like, hey, this sounds like something that Bell Hooks wrote about or this sounds like something that Alice Walker has talked about or, and, and this sounds like all these different things. So I started doing that work of like trying to unpack for myself, like, what is this that I'm seeing? Because no one's talking about it, right? We've not had a reckoning really with patriarchy in an intersectional sense, if that makes sense. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. What would a reckoning like that look like, I guess? I think a reckoning would look like an intersectional look at all the ways patriarchy is existing. I, I, again, I don't, I don't think we've had a, a reckoning with anything, really, if I'm being quite frank with you. But... You take a look at, let's say, the, the leaked Roe v. Wade decision, right? The, the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. And the general narrative and, and protests from like kind of like white feminism that owns the space as opposed to like an intersectional feminism or a womanism. And you see the issues in that and the necessity for a reckoning because a lot of people who are like, oh, we're fighting against the patriarchy because we're fighting for bodily autonomy. Well, then what happens when you're telling people not to use terms like birthing people, even though a trans man can give birth, right? Like, so now you're saying like, oh, we're raging against the patriarchy, dismantle patriarchy, but you're actually upholding the patriarchy as well in that you're being transphobic, right? And that's what I mean, like, we need a reckoning of like, kind of like looking at all of it, not looking at it from this like very stringent white feminist lens, but looking at it again from an intersectional lens of like, how does this impact everybody? How do we all need to be working to dismantle this in ourselves? How are we all implicated in how it's upheld? Well, and it's interesting, you know, you talked about kind of your upbringing and a lot of these lessons of patriarchy and, and misogyny and masculine gender stereotypes and gender norms, you know, you were actually learning from, from the women in your life that, you know, while you were also learning kind of the ways to cook and clean and take on some of the more traditionally stereotypically feminine roles, but you were also being told things like, well, you need to find yourself a woman who can do all these things for you. And so, you know, tell me about your family growing up and what that looked like for you. You know, I was raised by my grandmother um, and my mom. My, my mom had me at 18. My grandmother, by the time I was born, she was, you know, in her late 60s. You know, you're, you're talking about generations that are coming out of like the South in the United States, remnants of Jim Crow, remnants of war on drugs, there are remnants of segregation. So there wasn't a lot of time, I think, to navigate like, oh, how has how have white patriarchal structures infiltrated our homes, right? So it is, this is what we have been told is a good man, right? This is what we have t been told is a good woman. We want to just be good people and survive. And I, and I think that a lot of people in the United States and globally have been in that situation for 
ever really, right? Like everyone's just trying to survive. So if you're trying to survive, there's not, there's not a lot of time to kind of recognize how you're causing harm. So in that way, a lot of things I was taught as a young black man was just like, we're going to teach you how to not be killed and how to like survive, really. Like, I don't even think it's like, oh, we're going to teach you how to thrive, right? Thriving is something that we don't think you'll ever get to. We've never seen it before, but we can teach you how to like navigate these systems. And a lot of times navigating these systems looks like leaning into patriarchy, leaning into white supremacy, leaning into capitalism, right? It's really hard you know, to tell a person who's hungry that they're also stopping someone else from eating because that's inherently what we're, what we're at being asked to do, you know? So, you know, when it comes to the things that I learned in toxic masculinity and even misogyny and sexism from, you know, the women in my life, it's completely understandable. And, it, and I don't think it's anyone's fault but the systems that they were forced to exist within. You know, as we're talking about what dismantling patriarchy can look like, there's that tension there, right? Like you want your child to thrive, but you want them to survive. And in order to survive, they might have to be equipped with, you know, some of those violent tendencies and things like that. If you were raising you, you know, if you were raising a child right now, how would you approach that? I struggle with that, right? Because I think that being frank, we live in a very violent society, right? And and, and particularly in the, in the United States, when, when we're asking kids to do mass shooting drills, you know, our society has completely gone off the rails in terms of, of, of violence, right? And, and so I'm forced, especially if you have like young black children, I'm forced to have to think about who do I want them to be to help create a better society and who do I want them to be so I'm not getting a call that my child is dead in this society, right? Um, so I think it's a mixture of both. I, I think that you have to have a conversation about the necessity for violence in certain times, right? For your own sake. But then you also have to have a conversation equally about the necessity of learning when to not use violence. And I think that's where, you know, my mother didn't have the tools. You know, she didn't have the tools because the tools were never given to her, right? But the tools were. Um, given to me based on my privileges, like my ability to read more, my ability to kind of take a step back, right? You know, we lived in poverty. Um, it's, you know, so like, you know, the, 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 there's only but so much bandwidth. So, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, the police are everywhere. Here's how you show up to not be shot by them. On the other hand, I'm supposed to also be thinking about like, oh, um, don't use violence. And he's, it's just really hard, right? It's a lot of bandwidth thoughts that are, are required to get somebody to that place. And I think, again, I have the privilege of more bandwidth to do so. Coming up after the break, more from Frederick Joseph about the ways he's been shaped by and is challenging American masculinity. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. I guess another thing that I'm thinking about is, um, you know, grace and forgiveness, I guess, and things like that. Because, you know, as, as you write in the book, you'd been in 40-something fights uh, throughout most of your life. You know, a lot of this stuff that you were addressing and unlearning was happening in your 20s and your 30s. And so, you know, how do you make space for kids to learn these things, you know, in their teenage years and their early 20s, while also 
you know, speaking out against them and, and living up to the values that you hold now? And how do you approach that with your friends, for example? I think honesty and vulnerability, right? Just being transparent about who you've been, but not only who, but why, right? Because there, just being really frank, there are, there are definitely fights that I would fight again, right? To this day, right? Like in the name of, you know, and like I, I would, I hope that somebody would be willing to lift a fist to defend a black woman from like someone causing a black woman harm in the street, so on and so forth, right? I hope that someone would lift a fist to defend, you know, a child and, and things like that, right? So there are, there are battles, fights worth fighting, the important thing is knowing when, what the fight has to look like, what the fight should look like, what it shouldn't look like, when it should happen, and all these things, the nuance, right? And nuance is a privilege. Um, and I think it's one, it's a privilege that I'm, I'm, I'm using and having conversations with, you know, my friends and in the future conversations I'll have with my, my hopefully potential children, right? Like the conversations I'm having with my followers and my readers, right? Like I, I, I stress nuance probably more than anything in this world i'm like hey you know like you know like looking at even the situation that took place uh during the oscars right like a a moment of violence between will smith and uh chris rock that's such a nuanced moment right where it's like on the one hand yes wrong time wrong place not good use your words sure whatever x y and z and also in a in a world that doesn't just not protect black women, but does everything in its power to, to destroy and admonish black women. I also was like, hey, I'm happy in some capacity. Someone said, hey, like, I'm going to protect the black women. But then you also have to have the conversation of like, is it machismo? Are you actually not protecting the black women? Are you protecting yourself and your own ego? So that's why I'm like, hey, we need to unpack these things and understand what's happening in front of us at all times. And like, if I had a kid... To be real with you, those are the, that would have been the conversation. Like, hey, do you see it from these ten different angles, right? Yeah. Let's talk about the ten different angles so that we can get right in the future. Yeah, you're right. It's nuanced, and and you talk a lot in this book about the nuances of media and social media and the way that they perpetuate a lot of these constructs and kind of your love hate relationship with it, you know, that the media and social media can show us kind of limitless possibilities of who we can be while also rigidly forcing us into these ideas of who we should be. And so talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it, right? On the one hand, social media is the greatest opportunity for communication, for growth, for change, for, for understanding, right? Like, you know, you're talking to people sometimes in far off countries that you've never been to. Sometimes I've never heard of. Like I have people who have read some of my, my work and they're like, I'm like, where is that? You know, where, where, what, what are you talking about? Where is that? Right. And that's great. But then on the other hand, you have the ability for that same reach to be for that, to have the wrong things reaching that, that those places, right. For, for people to say, Someone said to me recently, because um, on my book, my photo is me in like a Malcolm X hat with a gold chain on in the back, my, my author photo. And someone said, you don't really look like an author in that photo. Someone messaged me this on, on Instagram. She's like, I really like it, but you don't look like an author. So I challenged the person as to like, what does an author look like, right? And in that moment, she's like, you know what? That's a really valid point. That's, that's excellent. So on and so forth. But that's far better 
interaction than the like conversation I saw on Facebook amongst a hundred people about why they weren't buying it because the person didn't look like an author and look like a thug. Right. And that's the danger of it where you have these people in an echo chamber feeding each other the same thoughts. Right. Like, you know, and 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 validating these thoughts. Right. Like, oh, um, yeah, he looks like a thug. Yep, he looks like a thug. Well, 10 of us said it, so it must be true. Right. So those are the types of dangers that I'm talking about. And then even more so when you get into the visual nature, not just the communication issue, but the visual nature of social media, where I, I think that we used to have celebrity culture, right? Like people saw people in magazines and you know, on TV and film and things like that, that they couldn't be. You just had this thing where you, um, you couldn't be these people, right? And now what happens when the person that you looked at before who you thought you couldn't be is your next door neighbor, Right, you're like, oh, this person works out 15 times a day. At least that's what they post, right? So you're like, oh my god, I'm not doing enough. But you don't realize that that person also is bulimic, or that person is also photoshopping their image, so on and so forth, right? So it's just like, it's this perpetual nonsense. I don't even know. It's, it's hard to explain, right? Social media is it's a gift and a curse, truly. In terms of, I guess, media like TV and films and things like that, one of the things that you're best known for is the Black Panther Project, where you raised over a million dollars to help, you know, young black boys and girls see Black Panther all across the country. And that is a movie. And you know, I love Black Panther. I love all the Marvel movies, but you know, these are movies where men are settling disagreements through through violence. And so I'm curious about, you know, where that fits in and how you navigate that tension now that you've you know, been trying to push back those enforced gender norms. It's interesting, not as a, a, a cop out, but I think that it goes back to nuance, right? It's like you can have a conversation with a young person, um, especially because, you know, that film's primarily geared towards young people about what are you seeing here, right? Like, where was there a, an opportunity to use words? I, I even think that one of the things I loved about the film is you kind of realize at the end, after the violence has taken place, you know, when, when the two cousins are speaking to one another, it's like this sad moment because you're like, it didn't have to be this, right? And that's such an important thing and it's such an important message outside of everything else about like the, the, the violence of it all. It's like, this didn't have to occur. We, what would have happened if like we would have had a good conversation? Now look where we are. You know, and, and I think that that's a lot of it, you know, um, in all these films, right, in all these movies, like, you know, in, in another book I have coming out, I talk about the military industrial complex in a, um, a book for young people coming out in this, this fall. And I talk about the, the, the impact of films, violent films, uh, you know, such as Top Gun, right, the impact of, of, of characters such as G.I. Joe, right? I do think that there's a place for these things to exist. But they should exist in the space of conversation and understanding. The conversation and kind of the debate between T'Challa and Killmonger in that movie is interesting because they are both, you know, wanting to dismantle a system of, of global white supremacy, which is you know, something that you've talked a lot about doing. But Killmonger's approach to it is, is of course, by supplanting it, you know, violently. Uh, but there are a lot of people that kind of came out of that movie saying, well, Killmonger's right or Killmonger has a point of rooting for Killmonger. And so, you know, when you are thinking big picture, and I know we're pivoting from comic books to, to reality, but when you're thinking big picture about, you know, what the end of 
patriarchy looks like, what the end of white supremacy looks like, you know, play that out for us. Imagine what a society could look like without those things. The end is an interpersonal end first, right? Like it's, it's not, I think when people are like dismantle this, destroy these structures. Yeah. That, that means nothing if it still lives within you as a person, right? Like, you know, patriarchy over the, especially over the last like four years for me has so much of it has died, right? Like, and, and I feel so free for it. Right. And it's so much of it has died in my immediate circles where like, like my friends who are trans, my friends who are gay, my friends who are women, when we are all together, everyone in our space feels safe. My friends who are white, I have curated white people around me who I can feel safe with as a black person, right? And I think that that's the beginning of the end right there. It's those interpersonal engagements, which then lead to actual equity, right? It's like, okay, great, I feel safe. Now, can we exist the same way in terms of our ability for joy, freedom, endeavor, right? So I, I think that that's what the end looks like to me, safety followed by a massive push for equity. Because I think when we talk about dismantling, you're never, you're never going to get rid of hatred, right? And bigotry. That's, that, that's not ever going to happen. You know, like, like at, it's just the nature, I think, of humankind that people are going to have disdain for other people for some one reason or another, whether it's race, whether it's, oh, you have on a blue shirt today. I hate the blue shirt gang, right? Like, it's going to be something. But can it be something that exists in a way where it doesn't systemically oppress another group? It's like, yeah, I don't like the blue shirt gang. And also they exist safely and freely, you know, like, and I think that's, that's what I'm pushing for. You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, just as I'm kind of hearing what you're saying and, and trying to restate it, it can be very easy to get kind of caught up in how corrosive these systems are on a national and a global level to the point where you feel paralyzed, where you can't do anything like, you know, like, we're not on the Supreme Court. We can't stop the Roe v. Wade decision from coming down whenever it comes down in the next few weeks. But you're saying, you know, one way to put that into practice right now is, is to focus on doing it in your interpersonal lines, to do it with your own sphere of influence. And, and hopefully that builds into something over time. Oh, that's exactly what I'm saying, right? It's, I hate the cliche, but it starts at home, right? Like it starts at home, whether that home is, your group chat with with your friends and and one of them sends something over that is deeply misogynistic and you're like no this doesn't work you can't do this so on and so forth and then you guys have the conversation and, and grow together whether it's like hey i'm a white person and my grandpa's really racist and i i'm i am making the decision to let my grandpa know he needs to change and if he doesn't change i'm making the decision to step away from my grandpa because it is more important to me to be anti-racist than it is to be coddling a racist right so that's the work right i can't i legitimately what am like i can't destroy every you know Ku Klux Klan headquarters in this country. I just, I can't, I mean, I guess I theoretically could do it, but, but I'm not, I'm not going to do it, right? That's not something I'm going to do, but I can, for the white people in my life, hold them accountable, right? I can hold them accountable and like 
help set us all on a path that makes us feel freer in our immediate circles. And then those circles get larger and those circles become communities and those communities become movements and movements become change. Another thing that you talk about in this book, and it's a very personal and revealing essay was being, you know, molested and assaulted by your babysitter growing up. It's It's a less addressed epidemic, which is the sexual abuse that you know, a lot of young men and, and boys face. But it does seem like sometimes when we do talk about it, it happens in, in kind of weaponized ways, like we've seen with the, with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, where you know, he, he was in a more powerful position where he was using that, you know, he was using false, well, in my opinion, false allegations of, of being harassed in order to, to harass his now ex-wife. So how do we make space to talk about these real issues and these vulnerabilities without, you know, letting them get, get weaponized. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would say that's a really difficult question. I, I, I think that, cause I, I've been thinking about that trial a lot, right? Like, especially with it, it happening in conjunction with like the book coming out, it just, it's been on my mind a great deal. And I think that we have to approach things situationally oftentimes right we have and 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 i think that that's the danger of that moment is that we didn't right like we let i have my take too and my take is seemingly aligned with yours um (laughs) but we we let this person and power dynamics control the narrative right like like literally like we let capitalism control the narrative. We, in many ways, we, we, we let the institutions that lift up the greatest white supremacy in a nation control a lot of narratives too with that taking place. And it should have been situational. It should have been something that we looked at in a vacuum of what is happening here. Who are these people? What are they doing here? As opposed to looking at it from this broad swath, which is what was done of like, did you know that men are molested as well. Did you know that men can be abused? Great. Yes, absolutely. That is not this conversation. That is a conversation. It is not the conversation. It is, again, it's something that we should be talking about, but you're weaponizing it because you know that we don't talk about it, right? So what I want to see is us talking about things far more often so that we know how to recognize the situations. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I think has been weaponized, you know, and pathologized back to the Moynihan report, you know, even further back is the black family and the relationship between black men and their fathers, or sometimes the lack of relationship between black men and their fathers. And very often it is used to justify horrible racist white supremacist policies. You spend a lot of time in this book interrogating your lack of relationship with the, the men in your family. So help us, you know, kind of understand what that was like for you with nuance and, and what it's like to hear when things like that do get weaponized. You know, it's interesting. I, I think that the best job I do of tackling it in a nuanced and and almost like forgiving way is in this letter to my uncle, who was in and out of my life for a long time, and then we just stopped speaking altogether. But like, I don't have a short memory for certain things, especially how constructs have impacted communities, right? Like how like, you know, decisions and policies have impacted communities. And a lot of the relationship between black men in like a like paternal kind of roles, the lack of them was was a policy decision, 
right? Like it was a strategic policy decision by various presidential administrations, by various police chiefs, by various senators and, and things like that. And I, it's not lost on me. So I interrogate it in that way. I, I, I try to hold space for both the truth of that, like, hey, I understand what the crack epidemic and the pumping of drugs into the black community did to the community strategically. I also hold space for how hurt I am at what was left over. I am in many ways what Ronald Reagan left for the community, right? Just like I was a lost young man clamoring for something. And that's what that was by design. I just happened to frankly get lucky in that I, you know, some some better breaks that I didn't end up like certain other people. But like those moments destroyed and set back. It was intentional. So again, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking kind of like I'm, I'm kind of like going on and on, I suppose. But, you know, you have to hold space for all of the things to be true. And I, and I think that's something distinctly American that we believe oftentimes only one thing can be true at a time. Right. We all live in the gray. As we kind of wrap up here, you know, through the process of, of writing this book and looking at this part of, you know, our collective history, how have you changed and, you know, what are some changes you would like to see happen on a interpersonal level and on a systemic level? How have I changed? I think I'm more hopeful because of this book about white supremacy, which is interesting because like the book is very much, you know, engaging patriarchy. You can't really separate the two from each other in this nation globally, really. But I think in seeing my own evolution, I'm like, huh, maybe there's some hope for white people, right? Like in seeing my own ability to say like, I need to grow, I need to to actively participate in not just being like, hey, I'm not homophobic, I'm not transphobic, hashtag pride month, right? Like that's not it for me to actually be in community with and fighting for black trans women, indigenous trans women, so on and so forth, right? I'm like, huh, this is not like, that is not about my own benefit necessarily. It is, and if I want to be a total human being, but I don't have to, I can like come through this life, be horribly transphobic and probably die still, you know, a decently happy person, theoretically. This is because I want to change. So if I can see that in myself, then I would be, you know, almost remiss not to see it or the ability for it in white people, right? So that, I think that that has given me, this book has given me hope and, and that one thing has changed. There was a point where I was like, hey, yeah, white people are not redeemable. You know, just like, yep, there's no, there's no coming back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that this book and some other, some other things that have taken place over the last few years have helped with that. My hope for this book is that people will use it as a mirror, right? Like I want people to truly use this book as a mirror. I want people to to see how they're implicated in some capacity. Cause there's so much in there, you know, even if you're like, Hey, his essay on sex work. Yeah. I've been getting it wrong on sex work, right? You're implicated then. And that's fine. How are you going to grow? How are you going to pivot? Right? So I'm, I'm hoping that this book causes a lot of people to pivot and grow. Well, thank you so much, Frederick, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. And that's our show, folks. Special thanks to Frederick Joseph for taking the time to speak with us this week. 
As I headed to my first Father's Day as a new dad, I really appreciated the chance to sit and think with him about how we build a better, broader world for the next generation. This is also the last episode of Season 6 of the Reckon Interview. We've got a few other projects in the pipeline that I'm really excited about and some new developments with Reckon, so I'm going to be putting my head down to focus on those for the next few weeks. But don't worry, we'll be back soon with more of these conversations that you know and love. In the meantime, please shoot me a note with guest ideas for next season and your advice on ways we can make the show better. One way you can help us grow our show is by texting this episode right now to a few of your friends that you think might get something out of it. And if you haven't already, it's a great time to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by the incredible Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. And until next season, be good to each other, be good to yourselves. I love y'all. Thanks for reckoning with me.